Welcome to Fandom Media. Season 1, Episode 4 of Legion has come. Our coverage includes Frizzy Top the Rabbit, representing empathy, versus the deadly, dangerous ocean that threatens to suck us all in, representing fear. Those two stories will battle it out in our heads, as told to us by Oliver Anthony Bird, a.k.a. Jermaine Clement from Flight of the Concords. On this episode of Fandom Media, all these things, a podcast in five acts. Fandomedia.reviews. What are your initial impressions of the most recent episode, guys? Well, I think my favorite episode so far was episode one, just because it's the longest. Yeah, so it's double really, episode, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's really two, like two episodes, but I think this is my next favorite. I really love the stuff with David in the actual plane. I loved seeing Sid on her mission. It was all really good. What about you, Sean? I also love this. I was blown away. I appreciate how experimental of a show this is. How you, it was so unique in so many different ways. The, the, the intro with this character just kind of introing the show, telling us a story, these quotes and everything was, I can't think of another show that's done something like that. And then again, like Che said in the astral plane, this awkward sort of CGI reality that they've created that he's wandering through. It's the type of thing that like, French art films do. You know what I mean? And, <laughs> yeah. And this is like a mainstream TV show about like a comic Marvel. book stuff. Yeah. yeah like... Superhero. This is not, you know, I, I just, I, I so appreciate how unique of an experience this show has been. Yeah, this is not your grandfather's comic book movie slash TV show. And this is not your grandfather or your grandmother's French film. <laughs> <laughs> That's gender normative. <laughs> it's also not your grandmother's comic book <laughs> movie or your grandfather's French film. <laughs> In addition to the questions of identity, reality, insanity, all the itties, a term we've coined, this time we add questions of location to the mix as well. So... Locality. Localities. I was going to say cities, but localities is so much better. So this episode tried to clear away some of the haze with character stories. There's a lot of explanations. There was some maybe reducing some of the confusion, but increasing it in other areas. Yeah, it might reducing have tried, some of the but... existing confusing <laughs> while adding new confusion in new areas, I think, is what they did. So they kind of, just like they removed some of the confusion. Only to make space for more. Yeah, that's perfectly said. So, as I said, this is a podcast in five acts. That was kind of a joke, but we really do divide our podcasts into about five parts. Today, we'll start with... Narrative. First of all, what are the five acts, if there are five acts of Legion? Are they five acts of the season as a whole? Or is it rather that when Oliver says that this is the beginning of episode four, there are five episodes left? Each yeah. one would be an act. So Sorry I think the latter... I made an attempt to divide this episode into five acts, and I, I could kind of divide it into five sections, but nah, I couldn't really say it was five acts. But it, I feel like it's more likely what Shea said, that it's the next five episodes or the next five acts of the story. Yeah, yeah, so we'll be following along, and we'll see if that pattern holds up, if they're you know distinct in certain ways, or if each one has a different storytelling style or something like that. You know, They've done that. They've kind of switched the perspective on things. In fact, that's a really good, important thing they did here, was have... Sid do some narrating, which sort of, sort of made it seem more like she's real. You know, just in case there's a chance that she's not. That's still possible. I think that theory is fading into crackpot territory. But it's still out there. Absolutely. But this episode, I think, drew that back a bit. I definitely feel like I've gone back and forth a couple times on theories where something will happen that will make me think, okay, well, that makes it clear. X is the way it is. And then two episodes later, I'm like, ah... 
actually now it's clear x is not the way it is and <laughs> sometimes i can't quite decide which i appreciate i like being able to try to figure this out i think it's a sign of good writing and good directing and good editing to be able to maintain this ambiguity i think the way it used to work for a lot of tv shows is and movies is that they would write their story they'd make it interesting they'd put in mysteries and naturally fan theories would develop and that would be a thing i think what we're seeing more and more is writers anticipating the fan theories and addressing them in the show ahead of time. Thus, that's how you get this ambiguity. That's how you're able to maintain this. Well, I can't really tell because they know what questions we're going to have ahead of time and they work that into the episodes. Yeah, a couple other things. I think a lot of shows in the past or even still, the way they would design the show is they would just hold back information. Just say like, oh, by the way, all along this character, da da da, and there's no way we could have known that. Mm. Which I think maybe is like... Cheating, you know, or maybe even they didn't really plan it that way in the beginning and they ended up deciding to do that. And all this is kind of leading up to another point that I feel TV shows in general are now made as a whole rather than episode to episode. They're a big vision, you know, a whole season or even a whole three or five seasons has an overarching design. And that's one way they're able to like place clues along the way that in the end you realize, oh, it was always there. And now with, you know, especially with in the past, you know, a fan theory would have just been like a household or a group of coworkers. Now it's the whole world is on the Internet, you know, <laughs> interacting, trying to get to the bottom of stuff. It's, it's definitely an interesting dynamic for how TV is presented to us now. There were a lot of references slash influences in this episode. There's something we we often talk about at the end, but in this case, it was very prominent. Some of these references were a big part of the story. Like, what are some of the examples we have here? Well, it starts off with Oliver's little speech to us, and in it, he included a Frederick Nietzsche quote, in times of peace, the warlike man attacks himself. I, th- I thought that was interesting. There's a lot of implications, like from the philosophical world is what that means and in this show what that could mean and of course that leads into other things they start talking about alice in wonderland you know when sid was narrating she talked about alice in wonderland and dorothy going to kansas and even in that moment as Aziz was saying that sid narrating seems like this episode at least portions of it we're getting from sid's perspective which sort of reinforces the idea that she's real however right off the bat she says and dorothy went to kansas or did she you know in the wizard of oz it's kind of an idea of that movie was it was all in her mind in the first place and then multiple points in the episode she kind of questions like what's going on like yeah. just like we the audience do <laughs> and even patonomy who tries to say yeah of course this is real i would know uh well i think maybe yeah. you know even he questions it too he starts to doubt it yeah. once once you once once they really think about how powerful david is it's like well Maybe we shouldn't take that idea off the table. Yeah, and I feel like we as audiences have to keep that in mind too. There's also Patonomy's quote about uh, supreme excellence consists of breaking the enemy's resistance without fighting. That's a Sun Tzu quote, so we already have Nietzsche and Sun Tzu and Jermaine Clement. (laughs) (laughs) David? Like Aziz said at the beginning of the episode, this starts out with this story about stories, about empathy and fear and the dichotomy between them. And he gives this example of Frizzy Top and he gives this example of himself going into the ocean. And we see him in this diving suit. So clearly there's something there. But I think this story, Legion, is about both. I think it is a lot about fear, but like, the stuff with Sid and Summerland. I think a lot of that is about empathy. And that's a gr- that's a great point to raise because this whole concept of mutants raises questions of fear because they're different and what can they do and can they destroy us and hey are they you know and there's also some maybe some jealousy 
Um, As Oliver says, it's our fear of things that we don't understand, and violence is ignorance. That's right. And people are violent. Like you said, people are scared of things they don't understand. And point at this point in the story, we're told that the existence of these powers is in the realm of superstition still. The government, this government agency knows about it. They know about it, but the average person doesn't. And if that realization comes for the vast majority of humanity or even small portions of humanity, will they react with fear or empathy? And I'm sure that, you know, looking at a large group of people, it will be some of both, but <laughs> probably more fear than empathy. That would make for better storytelling anyway. And it's probably more realistic. On a less fantastic scale, I also think it's interesting to think about, you know, how kids are raised and what their parents tell them, the difference between like, hey, let's tell my kid a story about a fun rabbit and the adventure he goes on versus, hey, kid, don't do that. You're going to get in trouble. You know or he's I mean? reading him the angriest boy in the world story. Yeah. Like, damn. <laughs> how is that going to affect how you grow up in a world, the stories you're told as a kid, you know? So there's a bit of a parallel between Melanie and Oliver, Sid and David. I think that that was one of the hidden meanings when Oliver says, I'm not alone anymore. Not only does he have company, but he has someone who kind of understands him because they, these, their powers are at least somewhat similar, it seems like, or at least they have some overlap in what they're able to do. It seems like David is probably more powerful, but clearly Oliver understands things about his powers that, like, right away, he's like, oh, he, he tricks you. Like, he understood things about the devil and all these other things and he explained all these things. And it's part of why this episode has more explanations for things. But also, we're in this weird astral plane that's totally new, and what does that mean? Even if the powers are completely different from each other, I think what's key here is that they both are potentially dangerous to other people. Mm. We saw how Oliver froze that glass of water, and he seems to be trapped in ice, and have him in his suit in his room. Yeah, I, I'm just sort of supposing he just might accidentally freeze people. You know, I don't yeah. think so. No, you don't think so. I don't so? think so. Hmm. That's my. I don't. I'm really? not down huh. with that. Interesting. I do. I, I agree with Sean. I think that he has got some sort of uncontrollable freezing power, and that's even if I'm wrong about the freezing power, I still feel like he has significant powers. Yes. Part of the parallel that I mm. thought was drawn there was remember when Patonomy told Sid, compared to him, you're no offense, but your power is just a card trick. You know, yeah. he's got yeah. real serious powers. I feel like Oliver has real serious powers, and similar to David potentially is a threat to other people or is on a different level from a, even other mutants, whatever, whatever. And there's also the parallel of how Melanie on some level seems disconnected from Oliver. He's lost in the astral plane or whatever it is. Whereas Sid is looking for the man who isn't there. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm stretching too far to think that maybe all these characters in someone's mind are the same characters in different phases of their life. I, I, I feel like I'm going too far with that. But regardless, I feel like there's strong parallels, not just between Oliver and David, but between the relationship of Oliver and Melanie and David and Sid. There also seems to be a parallel in maybe in the concept of the drug being put under. Oh, yeah. that's, that's something that you pointed out to it last night. You said it's interesting that Patonomy's reaction to the idea that they put David under, he got really frustrated at that idea. And now maybe we have more context on that. Maybe that's what happened with Oliver. They put him under and he hasn't come back. See, I thought that that was really likely when I first thought about it and saw the episode and saw him laying there, maybe had been sedated in some room. But why is he in a diving suit? Unless yeah, his power did something like that. So it made me less sure that maybe they dated him, but not in that situation, not on purpose, sitting him down. Maybe they did it while he was already 
in a diving suit for some reason. I think the diving suit might have something to do with his cold powers. Like he has, he seems to be, he's certainly making the room cold around him. Diving suit wouldn't help you, but. Yeah, especially an ancient diving suit. Yeah. Which, by the way, the ancient diving suit is, is another symbol of this, this this show's timelessness. Not only do we not know where it is, we don't know when it is. and But they do give us clues to show how things have moved along. Like, Oliver's clothes and style and... Talk about free love. Talking about free love kind of sounds like the 60s and 70s and the way he's dressed. But it's not 100% clear. I thought it sounded like 2017. <laughs> <laughs> See, what I think, and we talked about this last week, is the idea that if there were mutants, culture would evolve differently. We would just progress at different rates. And so maybe he has a lot of the aspects of the 60s, but that happened in the early 50s, and everything's been progressed, and this is actually only 1970, And but we have technology like now, and some technology like back then, and that's my thought, is that it is still not the same as our reality, obviously. I agree with that, although it with, comes with the caveat of mutant, the existence of mutants isn't doesn't seem to be widely known. But that doesn't mean that mutants couldn't yeah. create some technology and not ascribe it to powers. Like, hey, I invented this thing. It's incredible. I actually used my powers to create this. But no one would know. Or even use my powers to figure out things about the universe we didn't know before. Yes. How molecules work or something yes, like that. very you know? good. Yeah, I like that idea. One of the things Oliver seems to have a great handle on right away is the devil with yellow eyes. It's one of the things that proves he really knows what's going on. He is. This is one of the things that makes us think that his powers are at least somewhat similar. It's one of the things that also makes me still suspicious of everything. Yeah. <laughs> underlying. I still think I'm on the side of most things are real. They tend to make things clear when things are fake. When we see his memory, we see it like through a TV screen. When we see the astral plane, it's it's just very fake looking. And so it would really, they really have to be pulling the wool over our eyes. For, That's a good point. For us, for Summerland and for Clockworks or any of that to be fake at this point. But I still am suspicious. Yeah, I think that just we can be suspicious without directly pointing to what we think is the suspicious point. Just like there's something off about some of these things. And just because we can't name exactly what it is, that's why we can't make specific guesses. But that feeling is something is there. We'll have a few of those things to talk about. We do try to identify where that feeling is coming from. Yeah. Something we've talked, we've mentioned several times already is how they cleared up a few mysteries and added more. This is a perfect example right here. It was hinted at that David couldn't see the devil with the yellow eyes, that he wasn't aware of it. And here in this episode, Oliver just comes out and says, ah, it makes you forget. Yeah. And he just right away he says that. He's, he, he perceives this immediately. But then we also have, of course, him calling it his monster, calling it a parasite, a proclivity, or a malady. So he's calling it these negative things, but then we also have... Melanie outside when she's talking about his memories mm -hmm. she talks about it as it's as if he has a guardian and he specifically says it's not a metaphor yes she shouldn't think yeah. of it as a metaphor yeah which we kind of which which was something we considered but it became more and more I mean early on we considered it but it became pretty clear pretty quickly that it was something more tangible I think but he also says that it is part of him yeah. in that conversation so it is just that it's both I tend to think that I mean if he says a parasite that maybe David was infected in some way by the people that the eye is working with potentially I mean yeah I knew about the dog stuff maybe to make the metaphor fit properly you would have to suggest that David created the parasite himself. That's why it's a part of him. He made it, but it's still infecting him. Or he created the Guardian himself? Or Sure. I don't know. I, I'm going to say I still think it's a metaphor. Even outside, like, however the show is presenting it, wherever the plot goes, I think 
as a viewer watching this, I still think it's a metaphor. Does oh, that make I, sense? I don't yeah. think there's any chance it isn't, but I think he's also saying, like, this isn't just a part of you. This is a real thing that yeah. you need to deal with. And I think there is a chance that it can be a part of him and a manifestation of his fears and other issues while still have been implanted in him in some way by yeah. the powers that be. Or well, his own powers, yeah. I agree yeah. that it could have been implanted by elsewhere, but we should consider that he did it himself. <laughs> <laughs> As After yeah. all, he is schizophrenic. So let's talk about the devil with the yellow eyes and all of the places that he showed up in this episode. It was He was a little less featured in this episode, mainly because we saw him in the guise of Lenny. We got more clarity on the devil's relationship to David and how he manifests in his mind. We see the devil moving really creepily just outside of the ice cube. That was one of the creepiest appearances yet. To me, the creepiest was when the hand came over his shoulder uh-huh. right at the end. I mean, I got a chill down my spine at that moment. That really creeped me out. And of course, Lenny and David turned into the devil when they were yelling. Which really feeds the theory that, that seems strong, that we've certainly been talking about, that seems pretty popular, that... He is the world's angriest boy in the world, and that something horrible he did is why he's blocking his own memories. Could be more to it than that, but the angry part, that seems very solid at this point. I mean, when we see that flashback, even we see it again in this episode, we see when David was a child, and we see that devil with the yellow eyes toy on the ground, which is also really creepy to see him just there. Mm. Also, he had a dog-stuffed animal, I took note of. Mm. So that might be where he's projecting the idea that the dog was real? But of course, we can't take any of these shown memories as truth like i don't know that i really think that david had these toys when he was a child except that his memory has him with these toys yeah it could be that the devil or whatever entity is interfering in his mind however it is tracked back through his memories of youth to implant itself the whole way or to dig up part of it trying to whatever this entity is maybe trying to figure out what david's potential is went into its childhood to mm. David Childhood Finest and left residuals of itself there. I mean, we even see, I mean, with the Lenny-Benny thing, that this is, seems to be the devil has, whether you want to call it the devil or David's mind or what, has has put this overlay of Lenny over Benny, the character, and we still don't know what Lenny is at Clockworks, whether she was a real person there or whether there was an overlay over her then. Because Lenny is pretty odd to have a name rhyme with Benny. Yeah, and yeah. Sid sort of interacts with Lenny slash Benny, but not in a way that you can be so sure is what really happened. Like, Lenny could have just been like a, a phantom in those scenes. And, but but know. the interrogator specifically talks about Lenny. Kissinger sees Lenny in the wall there. So, like, that's three people that interact with her or talk about her by name, which the name is also, like, that could be something that he implants over it. But... I, I don't know what I think about this, honestly. Another perfect example. Little... We know more about Lenny, but we know less about yeah. Lenny. <laughs> Here's one other thought while we're talking about this. Is it something I often think about is, you know, monsters of humanity, Hitler, or mass murderers, or whatever. At some point, they were just a five-year-old kid playing with their stuffed animal. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And maybe on some level, the potential for evil is in all of us. And depending on how we're brought up through society... That evil can 
come out and grow and turn into an addiction or a murderer, you know? Maybe that's what the symbol, the devil with the yellow eyes, was there when he was a boy because that's a potential thing he could grow into. And he did because someone told him this story about the English boy and he grew up in fear his whole life, you know? Speaking of Hitler, the world's angriest boy in the world even has a Hitler mustache yeah, in this yeah. scene. Well, another thing, he has a butcher knife. Yeah, it's... he definitely changes just like the devil with the yellow eyes can change his clothes as we've seen and form world's angriest boy in the world does. Sean, are you telling me that if something's been slightly different, I could have grown up with telepathy and telekinesis and pyrokinesis and... <laughs> Either that or you could have grown up with a butcher knife. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even have a dog. <laughs> On the subject of the world's angriest boy, I think that it was really striking and a great choice to have Sid see him in specifically in this forest area and then when she's on the bus which is she sees him in these really green lush areas and he stands in like really stark contrast and that black and white makes him really scary looking yeah Yeah, and it continues to make us a little confused about what we're seeing like is this real is that why she's seeing things or is it just her because no one else is seeing them because she's been in david's body and absorb some of his powers because they have this bond is she seeing it or is there more going on here is Sid in his mind period another thing that they do is in Philly's memory when we're learning this dramatic reveal about Benny I think it's notable that we see the Lenny memory and then it transitions to the Benny reveal and I think that's just a dramatic device to show us the viewer but I think that it is interesting that we can't trust necessarily that what they're showing us is what the memory was because we see the Lenny memory there mm, specifically. Yeah. I'd say right now this is one of the things that's the hardest to get around. The identity of, of Lenny and Benny and how other people have perceived them. It's a really difficult question and the only answer, quote unquote, that we can have right now is that we don't know what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> it does lead to another thing. We've touched on the dog motif before, and I even want to say I was like a little proud of myself. That moment in the episode we were watching, and Kissinger and Amy were talking, and something happened. The phone rang, or the microwave timer went off, or something. I don't know what it was. And we paused the episode right as Kissinger was like, yeah, your dog, King. And we paused it. And I was like, they didn't have a dog. She's about to say they didn't have a dog. So then we did whatever we did, press play, and she says... We didn't have a it dog. Was the first line, it was <laughs> yeah. so perfect. Yeah. David. So basically, Lenny is devil, is angriest boy, is king. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, yeah. I. It, the thing is, it's hard to know when we're seeing memories, especially when we're seeing memories that someone else is telling us about David having had yeah. versus someone versus David telling someone about his memory versus someone living, entering his memory. These are all. Even when that happens, you don't even know what's sure or what's covered. But the idea that we see Lenny and Benny is different and we see the dog as being there or not, is it because that's memory, quote unquote, that image we saw of David as a kid with Amy and the dog? Is that how Dr. Poole perceived that? Yeah, see, I think that they're just showing us this stuff as a dramatic device. Like, this was clearly meant to be Amy's memory of it. But we're seeing the dog existing. We're seeing it as if it's there. That dog didn't actually, wasn't projected for Amy to see, despite this being portrayed as her memory. So I think it's another example of this dramatic device. Unless they're really tricking us. Yeah, one example of that, that, that what you reminded me of there, is how we see a lot of scenes that should be, appear to be a montage of things that David has had flash through his head. Yet one recurring image is of Sid waking up. And that's something that we initially saw from Sid's point of view, 
she has, she, it's, it was shown as the devil with the yellow eyes and then she wakes up suddenly. And we've seen that scene again multiple times now in this episode. It was shown to us and that was really curious to me. And I wonder why something that's from Sid's perspective is being shown as part of David's memories. So it just speaks more to the whole idea that they're connected because of the power switch or that she's not real. <laughs> we talked a bit last week about what powers David has. And so this is the redux of that in that we hear that he can create mental projection spaces. That is the astral plane, which at first started ringing alarm bells in terms of wondering what kind of things he can create. But the astral plane is pretty clearly fake looking. So as I mentioned earlier, I, it instead veered me away from the idea that he can create whole, whole realities. But they do say that it's psychic projection to create a simulated reality. And it seemed that, well, when Sid went into his memory and Patonomy says that that was a psychic projection, she didn't know at the time. So it wasn't clear to us then. So it, they have been sneaky with it before. That space that her and David were in wasn't real. And that could be what we're seeing when Melanie sees Oliver in his suit, just like a vision of sort of. And that's not her power. She doesn't seem to have any powers. That almost certainly has to be Oliver, like what she thinks he's doing, like reaching out to her or at least projecting himself or, hey, I'm here, you know, <laughs> something like that. Oliver did say it's not real unless you make it real. And it was sort of ominous when he said that. And it even made me wonder... What else has David already made real? You know, has he already made something real that he shouldn't have? You know? Yeah. One other key thing about David's power, something else that happened in this episode, for the first time, he seemed to use it for control. When he flashed himself out of the astral plane onto the street with the car coming, he just raised his hand up in the air and the car just turned to the side and crashed. It's the first time he seemed to have control over his powers. It's starting to look like he has the most control when he's angry. That yeah, I think it was he. It was almost like he found clarity when you know he found clarity and focus because of the how important the situation was and how much Sid means to him. You know what he should have done is listen to the sign that the truck crashed into there. You know what it said? No. It said uh, slow down, uncertainty <laughs> ahead. <laughs> it said uncertainty ahead. Huh? Yes, I did not catch that. Says that that yeah. is very true. It was very true. And my other thought is that. Sid needs to come up with a safe word. Yeah. Which he can yell in a moment's notice to David. So he knows that she switched bodies with someone. Because, like, right? in that yeah. moment, she's like overwhelmed by everything that's going on. She just needs to do something. Like, yeah, how do you react that quickly unless you've planned for this? Yeah. And this maybe is the first time they've ever needed to plan for this, but it might not be the last time. I agree. Oh. They should have a safe word. The sign that says uncertainty ahead really definitely describes, especially this subplot of Sid's mission with Patonomy and Carrie because first of all the narration is asking these questions of reality the whole time just constantly reminding us what's going on but second of all the locations in this in this mission are very puzzling they just seem to go from place to place they we never we, other than being on the bus we do see them on the bus we don't really see them go from place to place and it seems odd where they are first of all the doctor's office Dr. Poole's office they immediately point out that it's been sitting there for years. This doctor's office has been sitting there for years like that? And With the, a bloody tape recorder yeah, in, just the in the closet? Yeah, and, and, and uh, Sid touches the curtains and something gets on her hands like she's wearing gloves. It's like something paint or something like that. It's very peculiar. I, I agree. I didn't quite 
get bothered by it at first till you brought it up, Aziz. And then the more I thought about it, I, I just couldn't make sense of the nature of this office, of where they were, and how it got to be in this state. I just, first of all, just thinking about this type of office is probably either part of a bigger building with a bunch of other offices, or maybe a hospital, or maybe even someone's home. But in almost any of those scenarios, it doesn't seem like it would just be left unattended for years unless it's part of a series of traps that are let that right, are meant right. to lead whoever someone towards the eye but right. it seems like some crime happened here and there would have been some kind of a police investigation and it seems like a tape recorder with blood on it would be in some police department evidence room somewhere <laughs> not just in the closet you know it yeah, does the yeah, whole yeah. setup seems suspicious to I'm me i'm suspicious of it the idea that well one one we learn that rooms and objects have memories so, can those rooms and objects have their memories altered? I am suspicious mm. of any human memory. I think they can be altered. I'm less suspicious of rooms and objects. I feel like those should be the true memories. But these are superpowers. It's, it's entirely possible. Yeah we, yeah, we can't really guess yet. But we see this tape recorder memory. One reason that they would leave it there is that there's a series of implanted memories that are meant to lead whoever mutants are looking for David towards the eye again and this cuts back to my theory that the eye had some involvement in the attack on dr Poole. and it could be that that you're right that could be the whole plan as we pointed out the existence of mutants is still secret to the vast majority of the population so if they were trying to make a move if they were trying to trap patonomy and carry and sit and capture them they would want to draw them to a location that's kind of out of the way like a lighthouse where there's not a lot of people around next to a forest yeah it was a pretty remote location yeah it, that does lead to my suspicion again this is the one that i was suspicious of right off the bat what in the world is this building that this psychologist is living in now. How is it that he is living in this? And it's not just a lighthouse. It's a particularly visually outstanding lighthouse. It's red, and it has, like, these windows around the sides of it. How is this the place? Yeah, how is this the place that this guy came? It just seemed like the type of thing that a filmmaker would choose because it looked cool, you know? And maybe that's what they did. Maybe they did. Oh, this is a neat shot. We'll have to put this in Legion. But maybe it's because it's a vision in someone's mind. It's an idea, not a real place. That's that's kind of where my mind was going, that this isn't a real location, that it's some sort of astral projection or something. And I was added to it watching it a second time the way that it was conveniently just outside the woods where they were hanging out. Which, yeah, by the, the when way, they were in the woods making a fire waiting for the call. They got a call saying, hey, we know where Philly is. Go go find Philly, and then you can find Then that leads them to the lighthouse. What is this forest they were hanging out in? I, I think I'm those were two different that. forests, is my thought. My oh, thought agree. is that they're, wherever they let, wherever this wherever legion takes place, that there is a lot of forests, and so you could go in any direction and go through a forest with similar trees. <laughs> yeah, they were in be... the city, and then they were in the forest, and then they were they came out of a different forest into the, near the lighthouse. Which, by the way, is on the coast. On some level, that narrows down. Yeah. It's yeah. probably not in Nevada. We can see a shot of the body of water. Yeah. I tend to think, like, they're not speaking in Canadian accents, but it's filmed in Canada. I tend to just be like, well, this is Canada. They have picturesque lighthouses. They have better trees. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite things about the episode was, as I mentioned, the Sid stuff. I really liked her thoughts about idealization and about love and reality and all that i mean she says who are we if not the stories we tell ourselves and 
That is true. That is just a ac- very accurate point. But it also gets at my thought about who is David. Sid has a very different idea of David than what she's seeing through his memories. This episode delving into the character of Sid was an, was an example of them doing what they're saying, which is Sid having this conversation with Carrie asking about, well, what, what are your feelings on this? You're a person too. And this is the case for David and Sid's relationship. She's a person too, and we need to see her side of things. And they do that. And I thought it was really moving and lovely, both scenes. Uh, the Carrie and Carrie sequence with the memory about the White Cloud family was one of my favorite parts of the whole episode. Yeah, I also really like that scene when Sid is talking to Carrie, and Carrie pretty much tells the story of the other Carrie. It's the origin story, yeah. Right. But Sid's like, well, hold on. No, you. I want to know about you, not about him. Tell me about you. You're a person, too. You have your emotions about your life scenario, whatever. I thought that was neat, especially because we just got that bit from Sid when she's like, it's not even really my body. People can just come and go. How does Carrie feel about her body? Is it her own body? You know. Additionally, by the way, I want to point out Sid talking about who are we if not the stories we tell ourselves. It reminds me a little bit of the point I made last week about how sometimes I was talking about romantic relationships, but just in general, your idea of what other people are is really your idea of what other people are. You kind of create an image in your mind of what the people around you and your world are. It's not necessarily who they really are. And that's true of people's views on themselves. I view myself in a certain light that's different from how other people would view me, and my light isn't necessarily correct. What color is that light? (laughs) Purple. (laughs) Mine's red. Demon (laughs) evil red. (laughs) Not pink? Mine is pure white. (laughs) (laughs) Another thought I had along all this, something my dad told me when I was a kid one time that really stuck with me. He also told me to save my money and do my homework. I wish that stuck with me. But (laughs) he told me that what we are is a combination of our memories and our hopes. That really that's, you know, more so than our physical body or how much money we make or whatever else. It's our memories and our hopes. And uh, I don't know, that really stuck with me. And I'm can't help but think about that when these characters in a show are trying to figure out who they are, who someone else is. That fits well here. So to circle things back to Carrie and Carrie Loudermilk, one of the most interesting questions they raised was what happens to female Carrie when male Carrie dies? And as it turns out, the opposite question is probably more relevant now. We still aren't sure whether female Carrie is dead. It looked like it should be a fatal wound, but... This is a crazy world where I don't know if that will be the case. <laughs> yeah, there's we can't take anything for granted like that. I tend, I lean towards her not dying because I don't think that it's n- typical for you to have a cliffhanger on someone that might be dead and to have them actually die. Usually when they have a cliffhanger, the character pulls through. I think if the person was going to die, it would be how they ended the episode, having her die, showing her dead. Instead, they left it ambiguous, which makes me think... That she'll, she'll live. However, this show does break a lot of tropes. So I'll be less surprised if she's dead than I would be in some other show. I can imagine she dies, but I don't think she'll immediately die. Or or if she does, it will be the very beginning of the next episode. Does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, yeah. I can imagine it might be a struggle to save her, and she ends up not dying, or ends up dying. But I don't think we'll just start the next episode. Well, now that Carrie's dead, let's move on our mission. You know, I don't think they're just going <laughs> to skip past it. Part of why I tend to think that she is likely to stay alive is... I think that the emotional weight of her relationship with Carrie 
is just so deep that I don't think that they can do that loss justice if it's not about them. Like, I, it's the loss of literally part of you, of yeah. part of your essence. And I, I'm so intrigued by how that would affect someone and how, if how Carrie would be different. And I would, I want her to die, which is weird, but I, I mean, I like the character. I want her to stay alive, but I want her to die because I think that she should die in this situation, but I don't want her to die because I don't think they'll do it justice if she does. Yeah, I, it's not that I don't want her to die. I know what you mean when you want to say you want her to die. It's not that you want her to die, but it's I also want her to die for a different reason than you because I want to be afraid that characters can die. Yeah. Does that yeah, make yeah, sense? Yeah. I want to believe that the threats are real. You want the tension there, yeah. Right. I want that too. I also think that this is a setup, not like a trick, but if she if she dies... We'll have to, we'll see what Carrie goes through losing a part of himself. That will come again later. I can easily see that coming up again later as David perhaps eliminates some of his own, you know, extra personalities or loses a part of himself if he loses the devil with the other eyes, if he loses Lenny, if he loses someone more tangible, if Sid turns out to not be real and he loses her. I think, I don't think that's the case, but someone losing a part of him, this, this could be like the minor version that's something that's going to happen on a larger scale later. It's also another opportunity to look at some parallels, right? The relationship of Karen and Carrie is kind of odd, but I think it's sort of like brother and sister is the closest I can get. Yeah. And think how close David and Amy seem to be, mm. right? And also, on some level, Carrie losing Carrie might be kind of like Melanie losing Oliver, a way mm. that they could relate, you know? Another thing that I really appreciated that they did is something that so many movies and TV shows just don't do, is all it takes is one sentence to explain some potential plot hole or something that might niggle at the viewer, which is the age thing. Just the fact that Carrie, female Carrie, is so much younger than male Carrie, she only ages when she's outside of his body. One sentence, done. Yep, yep, I also appreciated that. I was curious about the nature of their relationship or power or whatever it was and they explained it pretty quickly and it makes perfect sense yeah just it's fine one thing that i thought about was i thought she was gonna spawn as a baby because she only ages outside of his body so like it was just weird to me that she happened to spawn right then i guess his power only manifested then or i don't know powers don't make sense Another notable thing, though, is that we see Carrie fight here, and she does not use pyrokinesis. So, I mean, if I was in that situation, like, maybe you're in a forest, and you don't want to start a massive forest fire, but I'm pretty sure you would use your pyrokinesis power yeah. when you're about to be, like, killed, potentially. Yeah, especially when you're raring to go. She wanted <laughs> action. Here yeah. it is, and she's going to hold back? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. So I don't think she has that power, which, again... Who has this power? Yeah, from who the first did episode. do that in that first episode? Yes. We also learn a bit about what different members at Summerland think of David. Female Carrie says that she thinks he's annoying. And Ptolemy, very clearly, he says it outright, thinks that David is dangerous and not exactly worth everything they're putting into him and that maybe he should just be eliminated or. I don't know what Ptolemy thinks that they should do about this. Is he down with some drastic actions like that? Or does he just not want to mess around in his mind? Yeah, he didn't necessarily say he wanted to take David out. He just doesn't necessarily want to risk himself and his friends for David. There's, you know, yeah. he's not necessarily against David, but he doesn't necessarily want to take these chances. For yeah, he's David. not necessarily going to take it upon himself to wipe him out, which is what Division 3 seems to want to do, whether killing him or controlling him or whatever. I mean, certainly the Eye was willing to 
stab him in the back right there, yeah, yeah. but then wouldn't shoot him. Shoot, instead shot sh- Carrie. That was an odd moment when it seemed like he's willing to stab him, but then wasn't willing to shoot him a moment later. Yeah, but I think part of it is that he sees that he's outnumbered and maybe can't defeat them in this situation. He sees Carrie running at him and realizes that Female Carrie probably knows the eye. Male Carrie started Summerland, so female Carrie was around back then. And they talked about if Walter is the eye, that he was around back then. And so they would have interacted. He would start, he would know about her and he would know that this is the person that's going to chase me down. She's yeah. the one literally running at me right now. She's I'm the one gonna, looking for action. <laughs> I'm going to shoot her. Let me get out of here now. Whereas David is preoccupied with Sid on the ground. And also maybe it would explain too why at that moment he doesn't want to shoot David. But a minute ago he's going to stab him because at that moment David was unsuspecting. He might like get away with the stabbing. Yeah. But in this moment he tries to shoot him. He who knows what might set David off. Yeah. Sends it back or yeah. who knows what. Also, when the eye is going to stab David, he's not himself. And he doesn't necessarily know that he's going to become himself again. Good point. Good he point. might just be like, ah, well, I'm her now. This is my, I, I, first the plan was to capture David, but now I don't have my powers. Like, this is the best I can do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. He might have even been hesitant to stab because he did seem like he was hesitant to stab. He wasn't quick to move there. Yeah, he was like, hmm, He might have I? questioned whether or not he had the strength or whatever to do it. Yeah. So. <laughs> also interesting is that the eye seems to use his power on autonomy there and he tries to use it on Sid and of course her power stops him. Yeah. She anticipated but, his hand going toward the head and touched him, yeah. Exactly, but with Patanami he does it, knocks him out and gives him the milky eye, which Maybe he can just knock people out. But I'm really suspicious of the idea that the eye could potentially take over Patonomy in some way like he seemed to do with Dr. Poole. I, by the way, wonder if the eye maybe is on the same level of David and Oliver as far as his powers. He seems very powerful. Right. He seems to have had several different powers so far. The way he knocked out Tonomy, the way he became Dr. Poole, the way he seems to just be immune to bullets. They just pass right through him. Yeah. He he also is able to see David when he is astrally projecting there. Whether that's the case that any mutant could see someone doing that, but any normal couldn't, that is possible. I tend to think that his name is the Eye, that that says something about his powers. I agree. It does seem like Oliver projected himself and Melanie saw it, but she doesn't seem to have powers. She doesn't have power. That's a great point. Great point. But the Eye definitely saw it and... Brubaker? Didn't seem the to, The old no. white-haired guy, he didn't seem to. So, regardless, he seems to have several different powers and and in the same way that David seems to, that maybe Oliver does too, he seems to be forced to reckon with one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, another thought I had too, by the way, another reason that maybe he shot Carrie is I wonder if he has some vendetta, some grudge, you know, what happened in the past, and maybe yeah. he has some leftover anger. Not only perceiving Carrie as more of the threat at the moment, but screw her, bam, I'm gonna shoot her for what Carrie did to me back in the day. Yeah, know? I think that's very possible. They definitely don't seem to be on good terms with each other, that is the Summerland and Division Three people. One small mystery in that regard is, if Walter is the eye and he knows them, wouldn't he know where Summerland is? So something about that is, well, something has to explain that. Oh, that's a great point. They did say that they formed Summerland quite a long time ago, and so he would know where it is. Hmm. And he said, I and mean, obviously he knows that Melanie Bird is the leader of your little band, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> it was a very villainous line. <laughs> wow, I didn't think of this till just now. That's a good point. I wonder if there's some sort of 
haze over Summerland protecting it. We even talked about, I guess we'll We're going to talk, talk about, about how there seems to be a different film quality in Summerland. It's a little shinier, glossier, it's got this brighter. It's dreamy yeah. quality. I wonder if maybe that's some sort of sacrifice that Oliver's making. Mm. That he's putting some sort of psychic shield or something over Summerland to keep it hidden from everyone, including the eye. Well, the eye, you'd think, would be really adept at finding them wherever they are, yeah. like, yeah. given his skills and what he's done and yeah. everything. And they don't seem to be able to. Maybe it's something that Oliver's doing that goes hand-in-hand hand with whatever subconscious state that he's but in. Melanie points that out. He says, she says, this is what'll happen. They'll do this, then they'll follow us here, and then we'll all die. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Another question that thought about a bit is, when is the I him? Like, when they show up, for instance, to Dr. Poole's lighthouse, is the I him then? In any of David's therapy sessions, was the I him then? We just can't say. I'm thinking, no, that he wasn't there for the therapy sessions, that he knows about that because the memory stuff, maybe, or uh, because they didn't seem to, like, they could have done a lot of things to him back then, and they didn't. They were just psychoanalyzing him? Like, hmm. why didn't they move him to... to Division three sooner, you know. Maybe yeah. they thought they had him under control, or maybe they didn't know the nature of his powers. Maybe that's why David needed to go back and delete those recordings. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure, but it is interesting how the eye has a messed up eye, and how David went in there to Doctor Pool. Now Doctor Pool has a messed up eye. I'm not sure. Uh, again, I feel like maybe I'm stretching, but I can't help but wonder if it's possible the eye was Dr. Poole all along or was using Dr. Poole in some way all along. Or maybe not all along, but up to recently, you know? Like I mentioned, I'm also just suspicious of these tape recorder memories of therapy sessions because we see the eye's face overlaid over the these memories of the tape recorder, like, twice. Like, it, on the, in the same shot, his face is there twice, and I wonder... If that's because he's been in that office doing something and they have some memory or because he was involved in that altercation. It's also worth noting right at that moment when Tonami and Sid are sort of sharing the memory of this tape recorder and they see a few flashes of images and then suddenly... We see the eye's face, and they break. They break from the memory. I wonder if it's possible the eye was seeing them through the <laughs> tape recorder, if he became aware that they were following the trail. Does that make sense? No. And that might have what led him to where Dr. Poole was. To He knew they were coming. Ah, you know? they've taken the bait. Yeah, yes. That, that yeah. is certainly possible. Fandomedia.reviews The scene we haven't discussed yet is the brief scene with Amy and Kissinger. We did allude to it a little bit, but we didn't talk about it in detail. Uh, it was a little odd to see it first. kind of confusing because yeah. the, the, the cell is weird. Uh, yeah, it, when, she, when she first moved, she like slides so fast to grab her food. And I was like really confused for like a split second at how she could move that fast. But then you cut to the next <laughs> shot and you see that she's on a big slant. Of course, she can just slide down in a moment. At first, I thought we were seeing... You know, like a, a trick visual where we can see both sides of the wall. And you're like, oh, that's just a plexiglass wall with some holes in it. You just couldn't see the holes and it was far away. You see the soldier walk by and he's like, oh, okay, have to that hide. makes sense. It's yeah. like an unusual prison cell, but it totally makes sense. That's stunning. Now, before we talk about what they discuss, I think there's an implication here, which is that the control of information is really important here. And again, the public doesn't know about mutants and they're trying to keep it that way. Both Kissinger and Amy know about his powers. That could be why they're in prison. I don't think Kissinger knows anything else that matters. I don't think it's important for them to keep him under wraps. He's not like someone that's going to rush out to champion David's cause. Like, what did you do with David? <laughs> Let's, I need to rescue him. The yeah. sister, Amy, she would do that. 
That but makes sense. They, just like they let Philly go free, they will. I think they're likely to let Kissinger go free. But Amy's being kept as bait. Kissinger is different. Yeah, I'm not sure what they're doing with him, but, but it is a little more puzzling. It's it's not clear. It's not as clear what they're doing with him. And I think that they specifically, obviously, I mean, I think it's obvious that they specifically put them in this cell where they're going to interact. Yes. They're going to have a conversation. Yeah, I wonder if they do know. They seem to like lower their voice and confide in each that other. That doesn't help. Right, yeah. <laughs> but but it didn't seem like anyone was watching. Maybe they're being recorded or maybe the eye can just see what's happening. But I wonder what the results of it will be. Also, I am a little suspicious if they would let Kissinger go. I feel like even if he wasn't like trying to go out and champion David's case, I also feel like he's not going to get rounded up, thrown in prison, interrogated, released, and not say anything. I yeah, still think I he's in I'm, a precarious spot. I agree. I think he I'm might not be. sure. I mean, we don't know what happened to Philly, for instance, except she knows that they're watching. So something yeah. happened to her. She had some sort of altercation with Division Three, and well, they Philly let her doesn't go. know about the powers, though. True. That's the yeah. big difference between her and Kissinger. I was assuming that she hadn't been in prison like this. That maybe she was questioned, and maybe she was aware Dave was in trouble, but maybe her relationship with him was short and superficial enough that they weren't going to, like, remove her from society, which I assume creates extra questions and cover-ups they have to deal with, you know. In any case, there's a lot to take out of that scene, but the major ending moment of that part was the reveal that there was no dog which is which was really funny to us you 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 called it as you said earlier in the episode now that we've learned this i wonder about the dog moments that we saw in the previous episodes like the eye putting the statuette of the dog on his desk the eye maybe now he knows that he never had a dog or that that was one of his personalities or maybe the eye in division three had something to do with david having these personalities in the first place mm. Possible. I mean, when you think about Clockworks having the dog there, maybe that was just uh, David visualizing it there and it wasn't actually there, or I don't know. And certainly the dog playing with the red tennis ball shows, again, that King is mm. the devil, is the angriest boy. All of those, they all are associated all with the related. same color. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe King isn't necessarily the devil, but he was playing with the devil. Yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah. Without so even realizing it, maybe, <laughs> right? Just seems like this innocent toy. It's a ball. Dogs play with balls, right? But no, it's actually evil. Be careful. You don't know what you're getting into. Yeah. Visual elements. The reveal of the dog was given to us with a really tight camera shot on the dog in hyper reality. Like the dog had like drool and mm -hmm. like it was really up close. Yeah, that was a really beautiful and moving shot, I thought. That whole sequence was of the, these dog memories and of young child David. And in our last episode, we actually didn't get to this section really because we had just too many things to talk about and too many visual moments just to, to even begin to talk about. I mean, this show is just an actual feast for the eyes it's just every moment is just stunning and so we're gonna get into it my eyes are getting really fat from all this feasting <laughs> we have a lot of motifs that we've talked about already like the dog one that we've seen and we also have this television one that we've already talked about before where we have even more moments that have to do with this like in david's astral plane room he has a tv screen and that's where he sees the vision of sid in the eye there with the knife and everything of course it's really the eye and sid not <laughs> sid in the yeah. eye but hey that's why they need a safe word i also wonder whether lenny devil knew what was really up there oh. or whether she 
wasn't tricking David. I got the impression that she was misleading David so that they could get the hell out of there. But it's possible that she didn't know the exact circumstances. It was also very interesting the way she said, I've got things to do. And he's like, what do you mean by that? And she's like, uh, <laughs> change the subject real quick. But I, and in my mind, again, I can't help but want to associate her character with addiction. And so what she wants to do is go get more drugs. She's like, we got to get out of here and get more drugs. She's, I think she's got more uh, nefarious plans than that. Maybe. Yeah. Either way, it fits the definition of parasite. The parasite get, makes mm-hmm. you do things, you know, it's <laughs> its own agenda agenda for its host other television and media motifs that they had was i mean even oliver's opener as the framing device is showing it as a a story in five acts and him you know talking breaking the fourth wall and we see it a third time going into the astral plane in that camera light transition when she's wondering where her love is she's like where where are you my love <laughs> and then it pans into the camera light the red camera light notably yeah it, it, they always are red because i don't think that was on purpose but <laughs> it was red it could have been green you know it, it could have yeah, been yeah. it transitions in um into the astral plane and so speaking of red we talked about red motifs like the red tennis ball and the red flashing lights and we didn't have a ton of that in this episode but we did have a shot of when he was robbing Dr. Poole, the red light flashing, which we hadn't really seen before. The red light, I'm starting to think maybe the red light is an indication of, is maybe a signal for false memories or something that's not his or something that's that's implanted. Yeah, I tended to think of it as, you know, his powers in use because we see Sid have that red flashing light when she uses David's powers there. But I also think that it can be both, that if the devil is altering memories, then red light can be when he uses that power and when the devil has altered mm, memories. When he's erasing certain things or yeah. hiding yeah, hiding the truth from David. I think it's emblematic of the devil, and the devil does alter things. I, like I wonder if it could be interference with reality. and Yeah. Maybe not necessarily carrying a negative connotation, but maybe it usually does. Uh, I can't help but be a little suspicious because oftentimes characters are dressed in red. Sid's dressed in red a lot. I so. think she's not dressed in red. She's dressed in an orange. You think it's orange? It's orange yeah. to me. I, I just don't think it's red. Maybe some lights. I mean, some scenes, it's kind of red, but it's... Even in the interviews with the costume designer, they talk about it being black and orange, black and orange. Yeah. Okay. Which, by the way, I even remember taking note, they've had two Halloween episodes with Sid and black and orange. Maybe also there's a difference between red versus red light. That yeah. might be another way to distinguish the clues they're giving us like here. We get autonomy in these like warm maroon purple colors yeah. from jewel tones, which let's get into costume design since we're already talking about this stuff. The production designer has talked about how all the characters have signature colors. It's common in a lot of shows, but this show definitely works a lot with colors. As we've seen, Lenny is associated with red. She's wearing red a lot. She has that red star on her shirt. She mm-hmm. has the red stripe in um, Clockworks. And in Clockworks, those jackets and pants that they wear actually say something about their mental state and how dangerous they are and that if they have a yellow stripe you know they're sometimes an issue and maybe can or maybe can be erratic sometimes but are not super dangerous red is obviously dangerous and white is that they aren't really an issue and so sid has her white stripe (laughs) white stripe (laughs) david has a yellow stripe and lenny has a red one and so 
in episode one, when Lenny yells um, at David, who's freaking out, that he's in the yellow. Like, right after they've switched bodies. Yes, right and after. And everyone's, they- like, all this commotion and grabbing. Yeah. Yeah, so when she yells that at him and says he's in the yellow, she's saying, look, he's, he's not a dangerous person. He's not a red stripe like me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, just like that, David's signature color is yellow. And yellow, to me, seems to maybe symbolize some uncertainty, just like if yellow's in the middle and it's uncertain whether he could go positive or negative so can david david definitely has some signature socks by the way <laughs> oh yeah i love those socks david's clothes also mirror sydney's clothes a lot we see that if she's wearing like navy on the top and orange on the bottom he's wearing navy on the bottom and orange on the top and so you see that a lot of the time more recently he's been wearing these awesome graphic tees which i expect to see sold everywhere <laughs> i want one of them at least Melanie Bird, on the other hand, seems to wear a lot of neutral tones. She wears whites and just tan colors. She doesn't seem to be dangerous. She doesn't seem to be dangerous. We also aren't clear on whether we should trust her. So she's a little um, unclear. And then finally, we have Amy, who's, I mean, she's always dressed very 60s-like, but also in green, all the time green, which I tend to think of all their memories of them out in the woods. And I, I tend to think of positive associations for her green although sometimes it is a kind of a sickly green it's kind of similar to the sickly green of the astral plane which i also took mm. note of just the fact that they chose that color for the yeah. astral plane I, I think it's notable especially because the ice cube is like such a blue and it looked a lot like the drug you know the blue of the drug and then we see the two ink drops of sid and david that's bright green and bright blue into the water i don't know just the colors are very similar to me whether it's just that there's only so many colors and this show has a certain I don't know. There'll be a lot more to come, I'm sure, as we see how these themes will develop more. We'll see more of these color uses and they'll add up. There were a few things from the last episodes we didn't get to talk about that were really, I don't know, cool moments. Like I was saying, I like this show because it's such a unique experience. It's they do a lot of, yeah, it is flash. They do a lot of non-standard stuff and it's, it's cool to do stuff in someone's mind so that you can create some great imagery. For example, when Melanie was talking David down when when he was like overwhelmed when he first got to Summerland, all the voices in his head, and she's coaching him through it. And we see this image of him turning down the knob on this like massive, you know, radio player, this volume knob that's as big as a car that he's like trying to shift to a lower volume. We also see how the voices look inside David's head, this cacophony of them surrounding him with the one light around him, and that's what he's turning down right there. Yeah, they're kind of like all everyone, all these people like facing in, shouting him down. He's just trying to <laughs> escape it, yeah. Another shot that I thought was really cool, uh, made me laugh, honestly, was Sid's head on the back of the bald head, <laughs> which was, it looked cool. It was well done, but it made me think of Voldemort from Harry Potter, and it was a little creepy, and I, I liked it. There's some visual effects that we see used a lot, actually, which which is like when Potomomy tries to leave a memory and it's like shaky and almost transparent at times. And we see that when they're traveling astrally. When it seems like David's fighting him, they keep telling David, don't fight me. He's like, I'm not. But but we see Potomomy kind of like shift and wiggle, you know, in space, like his powers aren't working right. Yeah. And I think those are examples of really, really good visual effects. We've talked about other ones in the first episode that they've done, like David's freak out in the kitchen, how well done that was. And they mm-hmm. clearly can do good visual effects, which is why when they have bad visual effects, like again, in the first episode, that big action scene, I'm suspicious because they clearly <laughs> have proven themselves. But we also see 
the astral plane. And here they have the ability to have bad special effects, so to speak. It's, they have, it's over the top on purpose. Yeah, it's over the top yeah. on purpose, which yeah. is so clever and so genius. And I love it. I just think it's so cool. Even though David looks like he's awfully superimposed, superimposed whatever, it, yeah. it works. It just works. Yeah. One of my favorite things about the show is all of the just awesome transitions that they use and there's so many that we're just gonna really tear into them next week for now let's talk about a, a bit about the awesome camera work and cinematography that they have in this show one thing that they do is they zoom in and out during conversations a lot like it's very common if you take note of a conversation they're constantly zooming in and out on the characters and i just think it's an interesting choice to do that and they use a lot of those zooming techniques in a lot of other examples like for their transitions and also for things like zooming through the tunnels and the walls which is almost like a mind to me like zooming through a mind and it, that's of course when david is dreaming um in episode one and i think it's really similar to the vents that david mm -hmm. is crawling through that he used to hide in his house in episode three for instance another thing they do is zoom through things they did it in this last episode when we start way up in the sky above the forest with the truck and it zooms down through a vent in the top of the truck into yeah. the inside of the truck that's that so cool, cool. <laughs> yeah as you were saying how they'll zoom in and out of characters when they're having dialogue they'll also shift focus like they'll have all the characters on screen but be focused on one character and then shift focus so that the person in the foreground becomes blurry and the person in the background becomes clear and then back again. I, I like that technique. In fact, we talked about that on our Black Sales podcast. I think one of my favorite zooming shots they do wasn't like particularly technically impressive, not like the truck one that Sean just mentioned, but was just really got across David's mental state was the zooming shots in episode one when he's looking for Sydney when she's about to leave, which... I perceive as his mind is researching, is reaching out for her frantically as he's running through the halls and he just communicated this terror, this fright that he had that he was going to miss her. Mm -hmm. And so they show it by zooming through the halls and looking into her room and all these things. Yeah, I do really like how they use the camera to give us this frantic, this sense of urgency that was a really good technique. Another shot that I think made a huge amount of difference for our perception of a scene was that long tracking shot that we see follow the interrogator after he's talking to David, because it follows him all the way. So you see the location of where they are. You see the pool, you know, with Liquium. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up, actually. That was one of my favorite moments of the whole show, because we're in this whole sequence of this interrogation. And a lot of it is referencing clockworks. And I almost was wondering if this is another room in clockworks and where these people came from and how it was connected, the timeline. It was, you know, early in the show, the mysteries are still unfolding. And it was like this big reveal when he leaves that room and it follows and you see all these soldiers with guns. And you're like, whoa, this <laughs> is some seriousness, right? Okay. This isn't just like, okay, thanks for the interview. You can go home now. Or, okay, go back to your room. We'll call you for dinner and your meds later. And you're like, no, he's in some kind of military compound. It's <laughs> like up the ante, if you will, of the tone of the show. Another neat technique they use in the presentation to us on the screen is shifting the, the aspect ratio. Generally speaking, TVs... Nowadays, things are changing. Like, TVs are widescreen just so they can present movies like they're on movies. But there's... Typically, classically, it's a different shape. It's like a more of a square shape for TVs than for movies. And sometimes in a show, what we're seeing will shift to that shape. It's not the full widescreen shot. It's a 
TV shot, if you will. Sometimes it's super widescreen. It gets narrower, and you see more black bars on the top、mm-hmm. and bottom. And that happens in some of David's memories. It happens when Carrie's telling the story about her birth, so to speak, and it gets wider because she's telling the story, and it's a more cinematic moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they use it in other cases, and we like trying to. Dissect what the significance is for each particular scene. Like again, when we see David viewing something from another location, like Amy, he sees it like a small TV screen. You know, just like in the astral plane, like the TV screens he would know from a child, from when he、mm-hmm, was a child,、mm-hmm. maybe. But in addition to these aspect ratios for memories, they also get into color grading to show what we're meant to know about this memory, like. The memory with David being chased by Patani and Carrie is blue, like has this blue cool tone, which I mean that's what those kind of thrillers would yeah, have. Yeah. So it is accurate, but also maybe that's a bad memory for him, and so it's got a cool tone. Whereas this memory of David and Philly and Pool and Doctor Pool eating there, Philly's memory has warm. It's it's like very warm colors, like so yellow, which I mean it's it's really striking. Audio elements. Let's go back to the dog for a minute. The dog was a really dramatic reveal, not just in the visual side, but in the music side. It was accompanied by like this dramatic reveal music, like oh, something huge has happened. Let's accompany that with music that fits. Which has a specific name on the original soundtrack. But next week we're going to dive into the original soundtrack now that it's out for us all to listen to. So you can check that out yourself. Right on. There's a lot of recognizable songs in this in this episode. There were just straight up not theme music. A lot of classic rock, The Who, The Rolling Stones, and you know Robert Plant. The show starts with the song "Happy Jack" by The Who, which I think has some significance because one of David's personalities is actually named Jack in the comics. That is one bit of original music that I really like is the music that comes in after he says that something new needs to happen soon in the very first episode. It's this very interesting music, and that is the actual Clockworks theme from the original soundtrack. That's the name of it. And I think it's my favorite piece. I listened to the whole thing, and I think it's my favorite one, along with David Redux. And we'll get more into that next week. There's the dissonant jazz that Oliver plays, that obviously is very distracting to David because he's not cool with dissonance.、Uh, he's not cool with dissonance. He hears voices in his head all the time. He probably loves silence, and that kind of music doesn't seem like he would,、uh, would name- fit him very well. <laughs> the name of that song was. Metamorphosis by Sonny Simmons. Nice. I really love that moment. By the way, I, I like Jermaine in the first place, and I love the the whole surreal setup they had there. I love the costume he had. <laughs> the, the whole thing is when he does his little poetry. Everything about that. It's very cool, but, and、yeah. it was run by ice, so it was literally very、yes. cool. <laughs> but the music was so perfect. It was so perfect. How into it he was! How he was just in his groove, baby. And Dave was like,、oh, "Can you just turn it off? You just couldn't stand it." I, I really love that moment. I mean, I love that musical moment, but I think it was overshadowed for me by the musical moment at the end of the episode. That Feist song during the big battle when it cuts to Carrie dance fighting and it cuts to Oliver dancing there himself and just everything going on. It's just so beautifully edited and the song was perfect. I like Feist in general, so and it was a perfect fit. I once again am going to be happy anytime they can fit dance into it, <laughs> and usually music will accompany that. So yeah, I, I agree. The music in that scene and that whole montage and the parallels drawn、With、between the, the different characters, the transitions that they had between like 
Patonomy to Oliver and how perfectly they framed it so that Patonomy's face was just over where Oliver was dancing, even though, I mean, that's a dancing shot. It's hard to do that editing. And for Carrie to be doing what Carrie was doing. Yeah. Male Carrie and female Carrie. Wait, which Carrie? Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely like a standout moment of the whole series so far for me. Yeah. I would have been proud of myself if I was the editor or director yeah. or whatever when that came together. That's beautiful, man. <laughs> A trick they used during the Carrie and Carrie origin story was having their voices alternate. But then during the climax of the origin story, they were talking together. At the same time, it was in unison. I thought that was really cool. It was a really moving scene. Yeah, I agree. I, I didn't catch that the first time, in fact. But I do remember the second time taking note. They were like, wait, who's talking now? Was it the other person? And it went back and forth like, oh, they're going back and forth. And then it came together. Yeah, I, I didn't catch that the first time I watched it. But the second time I did, and I did appreciate it. So this that's a lot of sights and sounds we talked about. But the big open question still is, what do the stars say? Maybe one of these days, Orion or Andromeda will narrate the episode. Or Maybe telescopium. They... <laughs> telescopium, yeah. What the heck was that? Maybe they are already. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> the stars are the ones watching. They're in control of everything. Yeah. Final thoughts. So one thing I found looking into this show, which is an insight into FX, which, by the way, they seem to be a pretty awesome network in the first place. I I mean, they have so many of the best shows coming out right now. In the past, never really gave much consideration to what channel a show came on. Yeah. If the show's good or it's not. But at this point, FX, I'm like, I want to promote FX. They're doing yeah. such a good job. And John Landgriff, the president of FX, talking about this show only being at eight episodes, which I assume on some level, some people expect there to be more episodes just to fill the story out or to build the fan base or to get advertisement it's money. Just American shows usually have 10 episode seasons. At least. Maybe 13, but yeah. usually at least 10 for prestige dramas. British shows, if this was a British show, they'd be like, wow, it has eight episodes, not six like we're used to. Yeah. But I can only think of a few that have eight, like Stranger Things has had yeah. eight episodes. I, but I really can't think of another. Yeah. Top it's, of my head. And it's, it's new for one. shows to be having even 10 or 12. Like, if you go back 10 or 20 years, shows had 30 episodes yeah, a season. 25. Yeah. It's, um, <laughs> the quality suffered. Yeah, yeah. And I think it also goes again back to what I was saying before about how the show is just one entire vision, right? Not this episode, Johnny gets a girlfriend. It would be this season, Johnny deals with relationships. You know what I mean? It's yeah. more of a whole thing that gets sliced up into segments. But anyway, John Langrove said that, hey, he can do it however he wants. I'm not, this is an exact quote, but he said something along the lines of four episodes, 14 episodes, one season, four seasons. We trust Noah Hawley to run this how he wants. We don't want him to pad it out just to be 10 episodes or just so we get more commercials in there. We're trusting his artistic vision. I mean, we see that with lots of shows that we watch like Louie. They just are letting Louie not put episodes of Louie out until he has more stuff. Yeah, yeah. it's definitely more about quality these days, which is something we can mm -hmm. all appreciate. Yeah, At so least for FX, it seems. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. FX. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Before we wrap up the episode, I wanted to talk about that Legion survey, which hopefully some of you filled out. I posted on the website. I haven't closed it, so you can still fill it out. I'll see what it's at at the end of the season and talk about it more. But as of episode four, 75% of people think that Clockworks is real. 
pretty good number. 13% think that Summerland is in David's mind, pretty small number. And 70%, so the majority think that none of the people at Summerland are in David's mind, but a great deal of those people think that some of them will be eventually. Mm. 60% of people think Summerland can't be trusted, which that seems a little high for me. I, I would have guessed it had been lower. I would have guessed the poll would have been a little closer to 50-50, maybe even less than 50. But... It included people that about 50% of people said they thought Summerland couldn't be trusted, and about 10% of people said that they thought Summerland was in his mind, and it still couldn't be trusted. Okay. And let's see, 40% think that Lenny is just a personality in David's flashbacks. Which... Mm. It's close to what was going on. He was seeing his personality overlaid over a presumably real person there, so it's... Maybe they were on the right track? I suspect some people will be changing their answers based <laughs> yeah. on what might be coming later or what might not be coming later. I was going to say, as we learn more, as we watch more episodes, we might get more clues as to what might be the case or how to answer these questions, but maybe less. I definitely feel like I trust Summerland more than I did at first. I do as well, specifically because Lenny is against them and says you shouldn't trust them, and I don't trust her. Yeah, yeah she seems <laughs> like the bad, the bad news, the bad influence. Although, it, it would probably be too much for Lenny to be just wrong about everything. No, I, I agree. So, a lot of times when you watch shows, you have a favorite moment. Sometimes it's hard to pick just one, but we definitely like to talk about our favorite moments. And by the way, if you have favorite moments, tell us. Tell us about it. For now, Shea, what's yours? Mine was definitely, I mean, I liked all of the Oliver scenes as a whole, but the, the ultimate scene with the Feist song that I talked about with that whole montage had the Oliver stuff, and it had all of the other people. And so I think that was is maybe cheating, but that's my favorite scene. Yeah, it's that's spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Sean? It's, it's really tough. I had a lot of favorite moments, but I think if I just have to pick one, it's going to be Oliver's po- poem there, uh-huh. his deep poem. I what thought that was really awesome. What peaches and what penumbras. Yeah. And in fact, I even thought a little bit about it. I thought, wow, that was really good. Did he just come up with that off the fly? I'm like, uh-huh. well, I guess he's been trapped in there forever. He's been thinking about this for a minute. He's finally got someone to tell it to. You know? <laughs> and then I thought, you know, actually, probably a whole team of writers came up with that. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose my favorite would be the opening scene. I really liked the laying things out as a story, you know, and the two different types of stories and how those two things fight with each other and how we fight with each other. Because all of that bo- ties us to David. It, it speaks to everyone. Those concepts that Jermaine, <laughs> that Oliver is saying, are very real human concepts that affect everybody. But for David... It's a lot heavier. The concepts are a lot heavier because he really can create his own reality. Like, literally can create his own reality. Whereas we just create a reality in our heads based on perceptions and beliefs. But his is actually tangible. So, I think that's a really cool way to link us as regular people to David and show these comparisons. I thought that was really poignant. And, of course, again... It's Jermaine Clement, and that's a big plus. Yeah. <laughs> and we were waiting for him. We knew he was going to be in the show. We heard his voice, but we didn't really get him on screen until this episode, and we got a lot of him. I so. hope we see a lot more. He was listed as a guest star. Yeah. Unfortunately, it means we may not I, see him regularly, but I'm sure we haven't seen the last one. I, I have to think that they're going to have a plot line B, that they need to get Oliver out of the astral plane. Like, why would Melanie not be like, oh, you went in there and interacted with him? Let's let's get him out of there. That's, a, big, that's a great point. That the could fact be season that, two. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good point to raise in general the fact that david is going to tell melanie that he interacted with oliver quite a bit and she's going to have a lot of questions about that yeah (laughs) hopefully that'll answer some questions for us yeah probably it'll bring up some more questions for us 
David. David. Whether you use iTunes or another podcatcher, please leave us a rating or and or review. It really helps us get noticed, really helps spread the word. You'd be surprised how much it helps. It also helps our egos. <laughs> <laughs> so until next time, I'm Lenny Busker. No, no, you're a Benny Busker. No, no, you're Fanny Busker.